I'm Zach Abramowitz, and I am Legally Disrupted. On episode four of Zach Abramowitz's Legally Disrupted, the podcast, we talk to logical founder and CEO, Andy Wilson. Andy re- sold his company reportedly for hundreds of millions of dollars to reveal. But of course, I didn't know that was going down when we recorded this interview. Instead, we talked about whether AI and large language models are going to make e-discovery disappear. Let's get disrupted. So, dude, it has been forever since I have seen your face, and you don't look any different. You look like exactly the same, which is awesome. You know, I'm like you. I'm doing all these squats. <laughs> they, they, have, they have gyms. They, they have gyms out there in Bend, Oregon. Yeah, it's called the Great Outdoors. Yeah, that's the that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. It is. It's pretty awesome. Uh, have you been back to San Francisco? Um, have I been back to San? No, <laughs> I've not. Not since we left. We like pillaged to the office. I took my kids and like take whatever you want. You know, like we're giving it all away, and that was it. Listen, you had cool digs in San Francisco. I haven't gone back there since before COVID because I don't think I can bear to see it. It's like for people who lived there, it really is like the best city in in America. Um, But it's just like spiraled out of control. I I don't I don't know what to I lived there when I was in fifth and sixth grade. I developed a real love of the place. Anytime I got to go back. It was like the one place where I would like, you know, I'm always eager to get home because leaving my wife and kids and traveling is not ideal. And yeah. I, I always want to rush back. But man, San Francisco was like the one place where I'd be like, no, nah, I'll take the later flight. <laughs> I always wanted yeah. my own time for the place. I love it. And it's just like it's just turned it's like turned into a disaster. Yeah, it was a slow-moving train wreck too. I mean, we we our original office actually was uh, Case Tech took it over, <laughs> believe it or yeah. not. So there's, there's some good legal tech juju down in that uh, 330 Townsend building. But also that uh, other that other rando company, I forget the name of the it was the legal research company founded Ju- by Peter Judicata. F- Judicata. They were also down there. So I don't know what's happened to them. Yes, they were our literal next door neighbors. <laughs> it was quite strange uh yeah but then you but then you away yeah Yeah, we kept moving multiple times we're just kind of moving away from the zombie apocalypse Uh, you you saw it coming they just slow moving right like it was like the closer that you were to it was at at&t stadium or uh yep at&t park at the time yeah yeah i remember you know because the the reason i was down there was that when i when I was uh, still running Reply All, I would every year Aptus would fly me out to their conference because mm-hmm. they wanted to give the appearance that there were like bloggers and journalists there, that it was a super happening place. And they would put me up in San Francisco, like downtown San Francisco, for an entire week and fly me out to the valley. And for a tech entrepreneur at the time, that was like an amazing ticket. All I had to do was like go hang out at the Aptus conference a little bit, you know, watch David Blaine. But I remember being down there and for the first time in my life seeing someone shoot up heroin. And it was like, what in the world? And that's like just every day there. Like it, it's a yeah, it's dude. a crazy zone. 
I took my kids to go see a play uh, near the Civic Center, and we got out in the park. Yeah, we've got three kids, and we're walking up the staircase to get to the street level, and there was a guy on the, on the, uh, it's really sad, like a guy just passed out with a bottle next to him, and then we get out of the top, and there's a fist fight that breaks out, another person's defecating on a wall, and my kids are like, and my wife and I are like, oh my god, you know, they're like, like what, what? This is not what we had in mind when we're taking our kids. This is not the play, kids. This is this is real life, unfortunately. Um, and we rushed them out of there, man. It was terrifying. Anyway, and now, how much of the how many of the of the lo- how much of the logical team are based in Oregon? Um, Oregon, just two, I think. Yeah, I don't really. And you know. <laughs> and you guys are you guys are fully distributed. We are fully distributed. Almost forty states, three countries. Yeah. Now that you've heard, you know, people like Zuckerberg, and I think I heard Sam Altman saying something similar about this, saying, "Hey, listen, yeah. this whole this whole remote work thing has been a the, 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 like we, it was a fun experiment, and now we see it doesn't work." Fun, I, I fun experiment, forced lockdown. I don't know if that's fun. Yeah, yeah right. But like. W- that doesn't seem to have been your experience. And I, I think there are a lot of companies that really make, you know, remote or distributed work amazing. It seems yeah. like that's I mean, from based on your Twitter feed, it seems like that's been, you know, your experience. Yeah. Look, I mean, each, each can work, right? Obviously it's not like the internet shut down and companies stopped building software. I mean, if anything, like, you know, 2021, it was like the peak of software creation and funding, right? Different reason for that, I think. But you can make remote work. It's harder, I can tell you this. Like, I think it's harder to create a remote company with a strong culture and sense of urgency and all that stuff. I think that's, I think it's harder. Do you think, uh, I'm just curious, how many of your team, like percentage-wise, work from an office versus work from home. I mean, a logical office, but I mean like an office type space. Uh, like, so as an example, like I, I didn't, I didn't work at home once during the entire pandemic. I have an office. It's a 10 minute walk from my house. It's not fancy, but that 10 minutes is like the most important, like that's the most important 10 minutes in my life because it separates yeah. work from home. And I think that that's like yeah. a, a much better arrangement if you can make it work, which is in other words, like, yeah, like distributed workforce and remote work doesn't necessarily mean like working from your pajamas in your bedroom. I think there's like yeah. a, a healthy medium. Yeah, At, no, like, I totally agree. Like, I think that's the biggest problem that people have a hard time grasping, like the blending because COVID kind of forced everybody to blend work and home life together, you know, and some people did great at that. Some people didn't. I think you've got to have the right setup. Like see that door right there. Yeah. There's a, there's a lock at the top. <laughs> I, I lock the door and there's a reason yeah. for that. So that little people don't come, you know, not in here trying to disrupt work. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I wrote an article for the American lawyer a few months into remote work becoming a thing. And I said, it's a Trojan horse. 
total Trojan horse because the first, and I, I remember this because I went from working at a law firm. So I understand I made the, like a vicious commute into New York city. I'm the exact person that looked at remote work and thought, man, this can be, I, I wish I could work at home. And the first six months when I started my company, I was working at home. I was like, this is a dream come true. I love every second of this. I'm super comfortable at home. I prefer this. And then six months later, I realized that like my bedroom had become my office. There was no separation. There was no place to put stress. And yeah, really since then, since that experience and what I saw it was doing to my, because my kids would also come into my office and I'd be like stressed out about something, you know, with startups, especially in the early stages, a roller coaster every day. And I finally felt like, Hey, this is, like, that's not them that's doing this wrong. It's me. Like I'm bringing, I'm bringing that in here. So I think that separation is really important. And I can't even imagine as a lawyer, like having to do depositions from your living that's room table. Right. And then no. like having to turn around no. and that be your living room. Like that, that's, that's horrific. No, um, no, no. We, we teach people stuff like that. That's part of like, you just can't take this stuff for granted. Right. You have to be like, okay, if you're going to work from home, that's fine. But here's what that looks like. Right. If you want to be effective, you can't just be on your bed. You can't be on your couch. You can't, Try not to be in your kitchen. You need to have a separation, you know, like your little office there. If you can, and if not, you know, go to uh, a place that you can get that. So, All right. So let's answer your question. I, just, I think it's like yeah. 95% of people probably work from home most of the time. Interesting. Okay. I, I didn't bring you on here to talk about remote work. <laughs> I, yeah. Although I'm, I'm certainly, I'm certainly interested in the topic. And it's funny with these first set of like podcasts, I I've been trying to figure out if I can just sort of drop people into the world of like my conversations, not give a ton of context, not really treat them as interviews, but just be like, okay, I I've, I'm fortunate enough to have met some really interesting people doing awesome stuff in legal. I can get them on to talk to me and I'd like to, you know, kind of bring you along with me so that there's usually like not a ton of context and I don't sort of do the interview style, but I want to make sure that with you, I actually do set this up appropriately because I think you can speak to what's going on right now and the potential impact on e-discovery in a way that others can't because you were already talking about ending e-discovery eight years ago when I met you <laughs> in the very, very earliest days of logical. And you actually went and cannibalized your own business at the time, which I've written about as how you went from a service provider to a tech company, which actually has a great track record in legal of doing really, really well. So yeah. I, I want to... Yeah I, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that and first let you tell that story because I think it gives you extra credibility in now talking about a potential second wave of mm -hmm. ending e-discovery and potentially having many years later to now cannibalize your business again, because I know that you're not afraid of it. And again, I don't want to give too much intro here, but I want to note this. Following your tweets, and I don't know if anyone follows your tweets as closely as I do, but I follow your tweets closely. Okay, I, I think you're one of those people that sort of knows what's going on in our industry because you're re you're really in it. I see a lot of legal tech founders that have been very almost defensive 
about Gen AI and large language models and chat GPT, kind of talking about, oh, everyone's just getting aboard the hype train. I've been doing this for a while. And that has not been your attitude. Your attitude has been, oh my gosh, this stuff is really, really important. Let me tell you how yeah. logical is leveraging it right now. So that, that yeah. that's like my very, very long intro, but let, let's start with the story. Tell me about the yeah. first time you decided to completely cannibalize your own business. <laughs> well, I, I was actually just sharing a picture with my co-founder that I found from 2004 when we first started the company in my dining room. And he's like eating a bowl of soup, you know, on the couch or like some eggs or something. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, it's right. It's fresh in my mind. Um, it happened in the uh, the Great Recession. We were pretty burned out doing big stakes litigation. I mean, these are like, you know, bet the farm type litigations, mergers and acquisitions, second request kind of stuff. Lots of lots of money involved. Lots of data. And yeah, we're we're selling services every project, and each one would be a couple hundred thousand, sometimes millions of dollars. It was a eight figure business, and we just kind of like this sucks. You were an <laughs> e you were an e discovery service provider, as traditional yeah, as they we come. Were like this, we're like this sucks. You know, I mean, it's just it was a thankless job, and it's not what we intended to do. Like we didn't want to do this. We actually wrote. I mean, you probably don't know this, but we wrote. A command line only, which is so funny how it's like full circle now. We wrote a command line only data processing engine for eDiscovery off of Hadoop, you know, the open sourced big table engine. And we tried to sell it to law firms and they laughed us out of the room because they're like, what? Where's the interface? You know, like, well, you don't you just like type in some commands and it just does the thing. And they're like, don't you do that for us? And we're like, well, how much would that cost? And they obviously, <laughs> they would pay you a lot of money for that. So we quickly pivoted to basically being a services provider. And so it wasn't the goal. Like, that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to be a software company. We just went about it all f***ing wrong. You know, listen, and, Mark you know, Harris, for the founder of Axiom, says all the time the reason that he started a services business and not a tech company was he said legal was not ready for the software. He said the most cutting edge thing that he could do at legit. the time was simply provide yep. a little bit of a different payment structure for seconding people inside of your legal department. He's like, that was innovative enough. Yeah, 100%. Totally agree with that. I think the tricky thing with an e-discovery company doing that is the money is so good. Like you can make an absolute fortune doing it. And we were making a, a millions in profit. Like it was a small business, but we we're doing eight figures in revenue. Anyway, so you can do that and you get sucked into it. It's like, you know, the event horizon is going to come back. So to try and stay true to your software roots, uh, it becomes harder if the money is really high. So the, luckily, the recession came in and was like, you guys shouldn't be doing this. Like, yeah, we shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> and uh, like, well, what, what, would we, what should we do? And this is right around the time of you know, iPhone had recently come out. Cloud was starting to become a big thing. AWS was a thing, you know? And uh, we just, we realized like all this stuff can now be completely automated in the cloud. And let's, let's do what we originally wanted to do, but let's figure out a design that makes sense so that anybody can do this very complicated task and do it themselves, you know? Not and, and, not, and not have to bring in a Deloitte or uh, an FTI to do this for them. That's right. 
Exactly. And or us. <laughs> We're or you, a right. lot of money too. Yeah, yeah. So like is really luckily we hadn't spent a lot of the profits. So we had a lot of money in the bank. And we used that to uh, weather the storm, hire engineers, fund operations. It was all bootstrapped from the very beginning. And that was really fortunate. But there was a lot of near death experiences there along the way. So from nine to two thousand thirteen, we launched the service. And yeah, you have this this great story that the founder of uh, of Relativity, one of your uh, one of your one <laughs> nice of your toy. one of your competitors, came came over at a conference and saw it and said, "What nice toy!" Yeah, man, that you know the saying: "Chips on shoulders, but chips in pockets." There you go. Okay, that there man, that go. put a big <laughs> chip on my shoulder. I was like, "What?" <laughs> Are you serious? I was angry, but then I was also excited at the same time because it was a classic, you know, uh, incumbent uh, type of thinking. You know, like, we're we're at the top. We, this is a toy. This thing possibly disrupt our, you know, super complicated so, software. So listen. So you you saw what was going on in cloud. Because e-discovery, I mean, up until really recently, and when I say really recently, I mean like right now, it was a business yeah. that was still, you know, quite a bit of like on-prem. And my guess is most of the discovery today probably still operates, and a, a lot of it is is you know in specific instances no, and on-prem. Yeah, no, no, no. The vast majority of discovery has no software at all. So no software at all. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm thinking about yeah. the biggest of cases, right? But you're talking about like downstream, people are just going to try to do yes. it w themselves. PDFs and paper, man. That is, that's the world we live in. That's how they do it. So now let's shift to today, right? The, mm -hmm. the LLM revolution. And from my perspective, technology, and I understand the limits of the context window, but technology yeah. that knows how to read. And to me, this is a, the biggest dividing line is you're dealing with a technology that knows how to read. And I, I, don't, I mean, again, it, it gets like difficult to discuss, but understand, right? And in a way that like technology has simply not been able to do. In a That's world right. where you've got AI that can read and understand at scale, the way that chat GPT can. My question is like, yeah. why do you need manual reviewers anymore? Why do you need review platforms? Like, what is any of this going to be critical anymore? Won't I just simply be able to point the LLM at FTX's emails and ask very simply, did Sam Bankman fried knowingly commit fraud and within minutes yeah. get an answer? Isn't that where we're headed here? Yes, I think so. But the thing that has to happen before that, and this is like logical is uniquely positioned for this. I mean, we had high conviction that this would eventually happen because it seems absurd. You know, it's like one of those block. I live in Bend, Oregon's last blockbuster on earth lives here in Bend. And I'm just reminded of like, this thing used to be where we went to go watch movies. Like how insane is that now? Like that just seems yeah. bananas. And like, I, I think about that with a lot of legal tasks. I'm like, how insane will it be to talk about what people used to do for discovery. Like they used to read other people's emails and Slack messages to try and find smoking gun or like whatever the hell they're looking for. That's gonna seem blockbuster level crazy 
because of this this breakthrough. And we've always had that um, that frame of mind. It just seems ridiculous. Like software is a great job of dealing with software. You know, like this is what it is: this text in, text out type of business model. That's all discovery is at the end of the day. And now that it can read, to your point, it's almost game over, right? Like, and it, it, in order to read, it's got to have the text. And I think that's where most people don't get. E-discovery is not just this review section. The dirty secret of e-discovery, and this is why it took us four years to build the software and continue to this day, is getting the text is the hard part. Like actually extracting it all out correctly. Um, as an example, like we just recently launched audio transcription, you know, like uh, two years ago, right? Recent, re- recently. Right. Um, well, getting that kind of information is really tough. What about a screenshot, you know, embedded inside of an email? Right. Like all this information is actually harder to get them than people realize. But once you get it, once you have the text, then yeah, feeding it into an advanced model that can actually read it and understand it. Um, but, but here's but here's my question. Why do you even need that step anymore? Meaning the entire step of getting the text out. Wasn't that really done in order that eventually someone be able to review it? Like the way I see it is that is we're seeing you have to process uh, uh, the data. You still have to do that. It's uh, so ex- explain why is that the case? Why is processing still important? Well, processing is how you get the text, and and in the context of I think e-discovery and litigation, this is not always true for all different types of use cases that people use our product for because it's a lot of different things. But litigation purposes critically important to make sure that all the text and metadata is really extracted preserved. That's it. So like, if you don't take that step to ingest the data correctly, like go through all the various, this happens to today. Like Microsoft produces the vast majority of discovery content in the world. And they suck indexing their own data because they don't get the text out. And so if you don't get the text out and you don't index it, it's not there. So if you're running any kind of search index on it, LM model, whatever, if the text is not there, then it doesn't exist. And so that's a huge issue. That's why getting that text out, like e-discovery processing is so critical. So I guess I don't understand. When you say getting the text out, I understand why you get a text out so you can run searches on it. But mm-hmm. why is it important to get, like, and again, I understand getting the text out eventually because, hey, we're going to have to have human reviewers that come and sit through and sift through this. We have to preserve it you know, obviously to comply with court orders, but isn't that all because at some point there, we assume that someone's going to have to look at this and therefore we have to preserve it. An AI model can go through the emails and look for key information, whether or not they're in a review platform, right? No, that's not, so that's not true. So let's look at emails. Just one example. Okay. Um, Email is a lot more complex than just text, right? So you've got an email that's got a zip file attached to it. Inside that zip file are other emails, PDFs, some audio images, maybe an entire email database. Like this happens. Like you're telling me some AI is going to go and take that zip, extract it out, go through all the different documents, and then find every piece of text that may exist, whether it's audio, video transcription, image snippets, you know, broken fragments. Hmm. No, that's not how it works. And so that's the secret sauce behind any like robust e-discovery product. 
it is a text extraction machine like you would not believe. And so for us, like one of the things that we're looking at is like, man, this is really valuable and really hard to do. Like it takes, it's unavoidable. You have to just spend the time to do it. You can't just go sprinkle some AI fairy dust on this and that just works. You have to do the work to actually build out all the automation to go and find all these files and treat them correctly. And there's lots of libraries involved, lots of edge cases that you have to work through. It's, it's endless. And so we built this thing. We're like, well, what can we do with this? One of the biggest challenges I think that any company has that's trying to get into this new AI arms race is they lack data. They lack text, right? How are you going to get these data? But the incumbents are in such a good position right now because they have all this historical data. The startups are not, the Wall Street Journal just did a, did a story about this. Um, these startups don't yet have the data. And so how do we get the data? You could use logical, like you could actually dump all this information. If you get access to the data, but you need the text, you could dump it all in and then use our APIs to pull it out and build your models that way. So we think that could be an interesting kind of a sub use case of helping people build data models using all this processing engine that we've created. Well, didn't, isn't that essentially what OpenAI did with Reddit? Was they they basically used quite a bit of Reddit, I think, to train their own models? Do you do you have a good understanding of that mechanism? Were they just crawling the, the web and grabbing that? I mean, a certain like what what kind of information needs to be extracted, and what kind of information is sort of good where it sits? Um. For what? For what purpose? Like, I'm what, saying for tra for training AI. You were giving the example of training AI models, right? Yeah. So that like startups would would need a tool like a logical right. to to get yeah. to, the, to that text. Mostly, but, yeah. So like, if you have a large corpus of say unstructured data, you know, or even structured data, it doesn't really matter. Um, office files, you know, that's pretty common. Email, uh, which I just pointed out, like. You need to have a processing engine that actually can go through and, and get all the information out. And it's not as simple as just calling email. I mean, even Microsoft fails at this. Even Google. Like, we had a customer just the other day, big construction company. Their IT ran some search in Google Vault, came back with six files. They're like, that doesn't sound right. And they just instinctively knew that that was wrong. They took the exact same data out, put it into logical, and they found 135 files. So, Shit happens all the time because those engines are not built for crawling, if you say, all the information available inside the data set. And if they all do that, it doesn't technically exist. So that can create a lot of risk for attorneys. Right. So, okay. So interesting. So th this is sort of a kind of a counterpoint to how I've been thinking of it. Cause I, listen, I was trying to convince my partner who's in <laughs> capital markets that we ought to put a major short on CS Disco. Now you, the, oh, the problem is that well they're well they're too low at this point they're 450 million market cap so I don't know yeah. how much space there is to really you know benefit from that but you mentioned Blockbuster beforehand and I I kind of look at Disco and say hey here's a here's a company that has Blockbuster but I I want Netflix right meaning that they they're they're they've they've invested a huge amount in the review platform in that business. And like, do you still need that? Are we going to still need that moving forward in order to do, in order to do discovery? And, and that's, I guess that's my question. You're saying it's not that simple. You're saying it's not that simple that effectively, well, yes, LLMs can read and, and it's going to affect the review process, 
but that's not the only yeah. reason that you have a platform like right. a logical or like a disco, but you're still for Correct. putting a short on disco and we should make, we should do that. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they've gotten them to talk about them for a second. They are a services and a software company. It's kind of like SaaS, but reverse, like yeah. services and a software. Right. And they basically are doing what we used to do. They would go out there and get these huge cases, these big reviews. They talk about this in their filings. Um, and these are like multi-million dollar uh, cases. And not only are they hosting the cases, but they've also staffed the reviewers, uh, which creates a lot of interesting you know, conflict ch challenges yeah. you know, for a software. It's funny because they also grew out of a law firm. I think they've yeah, stuck more in some ways to their law firm roots than you have to your service provider roots. 100%. I mean, we, we started as a software company and pivoted to a services company. Now we're back to a software company, you know, and I have zero interest in getting into that services business for a variety of reasons. So yeah, they're in a different spot. They're not a pure play software company and I don't think they ever will be. That's fine. You know, you need people like that. Like it's a different version of relativity vendor, you know, like, you know, there, there's so many different relativity variants out there. Um, you know, that's the, that's their market is the channel market. And people want some level of variety and Disco is giving them that variety. And again, you think that moving forward five years from now, will we have the same number of manual reviewers in the world today? Go, no. I'm talking contract attorneys, 27 to $30. What's happened? What's going to happen to that industry? No, no, not at all. So um, I think, and it's, it's, there will always be a case for human review, full stop, right? That, yeah. Well, it's, this is the way it is. But you will not need the army of attorneys doing this task anymore. You just won't. And we're already seeing this. Logical's bet early on was an inverse model. Like most people take a, let's go find the needles in the haystack approach. And we said, well, the haystack is the problem. Like that's the thing that's growing exponentially. What if we found the hay, which is a lot easier to, to find actually, and then cull it. That's why it's called logical. So like if you remove the hay and kind of blow it away, it, the needles are kind of obvious. And so like we see our customers today, what used to take, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 people, one person is doing in an afternoon. Like this happens all the time. And that is even going to get more automated. And so that leftover piece, you know, the, the uncold data set, that's where we're investing our energy. We're like, okay, we're really good. Like it's the world's best calling service, right? So like that, that's great. Now we want to automate the review piece so that they don't even have to do that. Because the, the future will be you dump all this data in either from a drag and drop upload or through the cloud service. And then using Aon automation, it auto calls, auto tags, auto redacts, auto summarizes for you, auto creates print blogs, and it just sends you an email or a text message. It's like, hey, Zach, it's ready to go. Like, do you want to go and QC this? So it's going to be more of like a quality control than like the actual, you know, humans going in and, and reading and tagging anything. That'll be the vast majority of cases out there. Right. Well, you even need to, I mean, like, I know there's always this pressure. Hey, we, we got to get it from 2 million docs to 29,000 and then from 29,000 to 1600. Does that process, is that as critical anymore at all? Since you, the whole reason to get there is hey, we, we can't review 2 million emails, but I've got to believe that there is a way for AI to review 2 million emails 
Now, you might say it's still expensive because running these supercomputers is expensive in AI at the moment. But isn't that all going to get commoditized? It's going to get less expensive. Yeah. Oh, one, 100%. Well, uh, I think there will be a period where it will obviously get less expensive. But the, the companies like us that are building this world where you can go and not only can you say like, hey, listen, you can take all this data now, run it through an AI model and do a faster level of review. It's going to be more accurate. It's going to catch human errors. And we have, a, we're, we're in a fortunate position because we have all this historical information, right? We have a, just a massive amount of data, right? And we can run comparisons. We can say, hey, your human review took X amount of time and they reviewed Y number of documents and they had an accuracy rate of Z, you know? And so that came out of the cost of N, whatever that happens to be. Yeah. We can do that, run it through hours and say, all that was done in a fraction of a fraction of the time and it had a higher accuracy rate. And we found other documents that you should have been tagged, you know, that kind of stuff. That's all going to happen. And somebody's going to pay a lot more money for that, for that, that, that service. Right. Do, do you think are from, from what you can tell, are people using AI right now? to review documents and, and for discovery? Yeah, like they're using it in ours. So we we have an approach of just knowing this customer base, like they're very risk-based and that's rightfully so. Like that's their job, like to yeah. minimize risk. Um, and so I get it. And so they're, it's rare that you see like super early adopters just go, okay, easy button, press, uh, I'm out and go to the beach you know, and let the, the system review my emails. It doesn't work no, if that anyone, way. If anyone dares uh, early adopt AI, we shame them and put sanctions on them. And Right, right, exactly. So we have this crawl, walk, run approach and then eventually fly, right? So flying being that whole scenario I just told you. You have to hold their hand, right? You got to get them using it in ways that are not very scary. And so one of the things that, that we built, we have a bunch of these tools now, but one of them is called suggested text. Just the word suggested gets them to go, ah, okay. You're not actually tagging it. You're just suggesting the tag. You know, it's like a sommelier. This is a, here's a suggestion for your, how you should code this. We're pretty sure you should get, take this. This is correct. Uh, but it's your decision. And so we have the suggested tag model and it works brilliantly. You know, like it just shows you like, hey, a confidence meter, like this is responsive. And here's why we think that, right? And then if you want to go find more documents that may be responsive or privileged or whatever, it doesn't really matter. You just go to the suggested text filter and find more. And so what's happening there is you have this level of supervised learning from the attorneys or the paralegals, whoever's doing the work, and this unsupervised learning model that are working in tandem, like an AI assistant. And that makes the AI assistant model smarter and smarter over time. And eventually, when they become more comfortable, they go from crawl to walk to run, right? Because then you can say, hey, would you like to actually automate? If it, if a suggested tag based on your historical use is 90 plus percent confidence rating for X type of tag, do you want us to automatically apply it and you can review it later? That's what's going to happen. But you kind of have to boil the frog with this type of technology adoption for, for this customer base. It's the way it is. And and the tools that they're using right now in logical are are those based on large language models like GPT four or are are these like even earlier AI tools that you released? 
mostly earlier AI tools like vector-based, you know, searching. But there's so the LLM stuff is very new. We're using it for a variety of functions inside of Logical. You know, basic things like summarize this document, like find yeah. PI data. You know, that's kind of pretty obvious. What we're what we're looking at now is how do you scale this on a per customer basis? Because you can't you can't share any information with other customers, unfortunately. You just can't do that. Not right. in our market. Like that's that's a huge no no. So some of these companies that are just kind of plugging directly into ChatGPT, and if they're putting in highly sensitive, you know materials like you find in discovery that is that's pretty deeply concerning i would not i would not advise that because the, the the open source models are coming fast and furious it's just how much information can they take because in the world of discovery like it is it's massive and it's not just like the number of documents it's the the depth of the document can be huge like zach you know what the largest pdf somebody's uploaded to logical is take a wild guess in number of pages Number of pages. I don't know. One 150. Hundred and fifty. Sixty-five thousand pages. One PDF. It would crash your browser if you tried to open this thing. Now the way logical works, it kind of chunks it up, so it's streams it in, so it doesn't actually crash it if you have a modern computer. But these things are huge. And you got these spreadsheets that big financial institutions use. You have audio files that go on for hours. Like we just had a customer that does collection services and they have to review like these audio logs and these things can go on forever. Body camera data from police departments. I mean, it's on all day long. So you've got to have a model that can rip through that all back to like the earlier discussion on text detection and do it correctly. You not only have to have uh, a good way of getting that, but you also have to have a robust engine that can store it which is non-trivial to do for LMs. One of the things I've been seeing you talk about on, on legal, and I've been tweeting about this a bit on Twitter and I've been tweeting about this, but as well is legal tech is a hot space. So you've been in this for a while. You were definitely mm -hmm. in it when legal was not a hot space. Do you agree mm -hmm. with my assessment that at the moment with the introduction of large language models, that legal all of a sudden is a space that a lot of people care about? Look, look no further than one of the largest legal tech acquisitions of all time. You know, Thomson Reuters buying case tech for $650 million. Why did they do that? You know, it's the combination of technology that they have, which I think is interesting. But I think, I think that was actually more, it's kind of a quasi acquire. You know, they have some of the brightest minds in the legal space. They've been in this, they've been grinding it out for 10 years. You know, I know Jake, like, they, yeah. They're in our old office down Townsend Street here, last I heard. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a hot space. It's a text in, text out market. It's like perfect for this this type of technology. Yeah, yeah, and I've got to believe that what's different this time is that, you know, I think I, I think you and I actually discussed this once that it, typically a CFO is not going to go to the to the legal department to create a lot of savings because legal is such a small piece of the budget of any major organization. But today, today I can imagine that more GCs are having conversations with their CFO 
where the CFO says, hey, I saw that Goldman Sachs report that says that 46% of legal work is going to be automated. I keep seeing the headlines. I'm reading the Wall Street Journal. So I think that's that's part of it. But it, yeah, it, it, it does appear to be a hot space. There are multiple companies, even in a terrible interest rate environment that are raising serious capital for legal technology companies. So, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that any of these companies are actually investable. That's, a, I think, a separate question. But we're definitely we're, we're definitely seeing it. Can they build right a, it's, it's, I think it, I think the bigger question is, can they build a business, not a feature? You know, like the, 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 right. the biggest challenge in legal and in general is the business model. Like if you're going to sell to law firms, you're most likely going to be in a low ACV zone. If if they have to pay for it directly, an ACV annual contract value, right? You're, you're in that per user pricing model, you know, 10, 20, 40, maybe $50 a user per month. Um, it's pretty low. And so you need massive scale, you know, to do that. Now that's if you're selling directly to them and they can't pass it through. If you are in a pass-through situation, like e-discovery is, all bets are off. Like you can basically charge whatever the market will bear, right? And so in some cases, it, it's extreme. Like there's law firm, little law firms out there that are taking on these massive litigation projects and getting billed 10, 20, $30,000 $30, a month just yeah. for a single matter. And then the in-house team, to your earlier point, they're a cost center and they're not used to even buying software. They're used to hiring Correct. service providers to get the job done. And that, that area is ripe for disruption, but it is early. I was just in, I was in Pasadena this last weekend at a Concero general counsel conference. I held a session where I thought I was going to talk about AI and spatial computing, you know, nerd out big time, but I, I got the sense that the audience wasn't ready for that. So just raise, raise your hand. How many of you have used ChatGPT? How many people raise their hands? There? What do you think? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna get this right because I've asked a similar question on my, on my webinar. Twenty five percent of the audience. Uh, pretty close. Two, two people raise their hand. So, out of twenty. Yeah. So, I, I've been asking. It's interesting. I've been asking a similar poll question on my webinars, which is. Are you following ChatGPT? Do you use it for personal use? Do you use it for administrative use? Or do you use it for legal work? So most people have heard and are following ChatGPT. Very small segment are using it for personal use. An even smaller segment use it for administrative tasks. And the smallest group of all uses it for legal work. So I, yeah. I definitely think that there is that, that, that there is some concern. Although I love to mention the story which is at the end of my first year at Schulte, I got a performance review from a senior partner and he said, you know, people really like working with you. Shocking by the way. And people really like working with you, but we have heard, we have heard a couple of like senior partners, you know, who mentioned that they gave you assignments where you came back to them a little bit early with a question, you know, you want to try to, as much as you can take over that work. And then he said, you know, maybe just Google it next time. And I was like, whoa, I walked out of this guy's office. I'm thinking, did I just get, you know, I'm in my twenties. Did I just get Google shamed by a senior partner? And I think that oh. we're going to, I think we're going to see some, yeah, let me Google that for you. Exactly. Those are the best. And I, I, I think that we're going to get somewhere similar here with, with these tools where you're just going to start to get people who say, yeah, 
did, did you try just putting it into chat GPT? Cause you, you probably could have gotten there a little bit sooner. Um, I, I think it's got that, that same sort of vibe and same sort of impact that a Google had. So I, I think the adoption is going to be quicker, but I would agree with you based on my results is that that's a much smaller number of people that have actually created a, an open AI account. I'm shocked by the way. I I'm continually shocked that there are people who don't pay for the pre the premium account. I'm like 20 bucks. A I month? know I would, it's like, a no brainer. Sam Altman could get me for way more than $20 a month using this tool. Dude, I'm like, shocked that there are people who are not using it, but look, it's the world's best personal assistant right now. I've created little bots that I just go back to, you know, and I, I program it to um, like, I give it a, a, a word command and it'll kind of come to life and say, what would you like to ask me? You know, that kind of thing. It's, it's incredible. Yes, I, I'm constantly praising ChatGPT. I, I, I very much treat it like there's a human being That's, on the other side you know, of that. There is, there's, there's only significant downside if, if you're caught up in the you know, future Terminator of, oh, who, who was not kind to the AIs? Oh, <laughs> yes, you never seriously. said please and thank you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so yes. Very, very, little, uh, <laughs> very little benefit to not doing that. <laughs> So I'll have to ask ChatGPT next time about my idea to short CS Disco, and I'll have to come back to you if we uh, we decide to move forward in that. I, I need them their market value to go up a little bit before we before we make that bet. Um, but Andy, thank you, thank you so much for for dropping by and uh, and dropping some knowledge on this. Yeah, man, good chatting. You've been a long time. Congrats on all the success, and I know you're having a good time with the fam. You're getting you're working out a lot more. It shows. I can see that energy, that youthfulness in your face. It's great, that, man. That glow. You got that glow. <laughs> you got that deadlift glow. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm actually. It's. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm suffering because the other day I was without my grips and I got to the top of my deadlift and it was. It was. It was a. It was a big one. And all of a sudden, my I heard like a bunch of non-awesome clicks in my left forearm and tore a, bu tore a bunch of tendons. So I'm I'm out for at least a week. But uh, I, I've been yeah. told that it's, it's hard to undo two and a half years of work in in one week. So hopefully, yeah, I'll be, yeah. be, be back and be back in rocket See that? See that little that big scar right Eesh. there? That's a I can't do anything beyond like forty five pounds on a dumbbell because i have a prosthetic radial head screwed into my left arm oh yeah so I, yeah so you're like you're like already like an ai cyborg oh i'm i well we're all cyborgs i'm just more <laughs> advanced <laughs> i've got the machinery in there <laughs> um anyway anyway uh, thanks andy Thank you for tuning in to Zach Abramowitz's Legally Disrupted. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. La, 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 everybody. La, 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 la.